Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. Life is full of things that are outside of your control. You wish you could control them. You wish things were different, but they are not. They are outside of your control. And it's not just the weather. It's not canceling school for flooding or freak accidents or health conditions that we weren't expecting. It's also people. Often we struggle the most with other people who are outside of our control. The truth is that there are people we'd like to change. We'd like to change their personality and their priorities, their habits, their beliefs, their politics, their loyalties, their love. Perhaps you're thinking about individuals you know, family members, spouses, children, friends, bosses, co-workers, church family, neighbors, community members. Or maybe you're thinking about entire groups of people, like it's all those Trump supporters, or it's all those bleeding heart liberals, or those Israelis, or those Palestinians, or fill in the blank. Whoever you're thinking of, They say things, they do things, they think things, they believe things, they vote for things, they love things, they hate things that you simply don't. And it can be such a rub, such a struggle. Underneath so many experiences of feeling out of control, there's a desire to have at least a little more control. Just a little more control. Can you relate to this? When we run into this rub, this struggle, the the scuffle for control, on the face of it, we just have to figure out how we're going to deal with the situation. Like, are we going to argue or fight or try to convince this person or compromise or bargain or go to therapy or seek a mediator or cut them off? What are we going to do? But underneath that struggle, somewhere in the background, there's just a desire or a daydream or a fantasy. And it goes something like this. If only there was a way. If only there was a magic button that you could push. And no matter how argumentative someone had become, No matter how angry or stubborn or set in their ways they were, when you push that button, their eyes kind of twinkle. And it's almost like a reset. Imagine that suddenly they see things your way. Imagine without any kind of a scuffle or disagreement what it would be like if people just did what you wanted. They love you the way you want to be loved. They thought like you, they believed like you, voted like you, followed the laws you want them to follow. They live inside the boundaries and the borders the way you wish they would. Imagine your boss 
agreeing with you, making all the changes that you've wanted for years. Imagine your spouse doing a 180 on the things that have created the most tension over the years. Imagine your kids doing exactly what you ask. Imagine the insurance company saying, oh yeah, sure, we'll pay for that claim. Think about every relationship that's ever been a struggle. What if that mess just wasn't a thing? Whatever the tension, imagine it just melting away into nothingness, disappearing. Imagine those people happily joining you in what you are passionate about. Imagine them agreeing with you and cheering you on. With every situation that has spun out of control, imagine if you could reset the game, set the parameters. Imagine how nice it would be. Imagine how peaceful, how serene. Doesn't it sound beautiful? So much less confusion and pain. It would just make everything so much better, so much easier, if there was a way to have just a little more control of the situation. Most people don't want to be in charge of everything, but if you could just be a little more in charge, if you could just have a little more control, it would sure be nice. So this brings us to a reflection question, a discussion question that we chatted about in groups at our Sunday gathering. If you owned a magic button that caused people to suddenly see things your way whenever you pressed it, and if nobody had any way of knowing how often you pressed your magic button, how often? When do you think you would press it? So take a moment and reflect on that. Alright, this brings us to our scripture today. It comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. It's the second temptation of Jesus. It's a fantasy. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, said to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and their splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God, and serve him only. Now, on the face of it, this temptation just doesn't sound very enticing to most people. Most people I know don't want to be in charge of all the kingdoms of the world. In fact, you couldn't pay them enough to be president of the United States. Some of them like a little, you know, armchair quarterback, armchair politics kind of stuff. But 
They don't actually want to run for president. They don't want that kind of responsibility. They don't want that kind of a spotlight 24-7 on them. They don't want people digging into their history and their family and they, that kind of criticism. They just don't want it. But this temptation sounds different from a place of oppression. So knowing the history of Jesus and Jesus' people, it helps us grasp why this temptation might sound enticing to Jesus. So a short history of the people of Israel. For 500 years before Jesus came along, the people of Israel had been swatted and hammered and smashed back and forth and back and forth by all the political powers of their day. First, all of Palestine was captured by Alexander the Great. He tried to turn every Jew into a Greek culturally. Then the people lived through 10 years of having five different rulers capture the land, a lot of bloodshed. Then the Jewish kingdom was captured by the Egyptians and held under their power for more than a hundred years. I mean, if that doesn't sting, I don't know what does, uh, given their history with Egypt. Then Syria captured them. The Syrian king, nicknamed the Madman, uh, Antiochus, his, his name, he called himself God Incarnate. He set out to upend everything about their heritage and their culture and indoctrinate them into his culture. Anyone caught with Jewish scriptures was put to death. All Jewish sacrifices were ended. An altar to Zeus replaced the altar to Yahweh. A pig was sacrificed on the altar. Of course, the Jewish people tried to fight back over the years, and there was a short time when they regained their land and their kingdom through a violent revolt. But it did not, that's the Maccabean revolt, it didn't last long. About 60 years before Jesus was born, Rome lay siege to Jerusalem. 12,000 people were massacred. The Roman general stormed into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, which is like just desecrating what's most precious to them. Every single attempt at revolt was smashed by Rome with their campaigns of terror. Villages were ravaged. Elderly people were slaughtered and killed. Thousands of Jews, entire populations were hauled away to Rome to be sold as slaves. Thousands of rioters were killed. Hundreds of people were crucified on the roadsides and butchered. Homes were burned. Rebels were burned alive. Those who didn't fight back, those who just tried to stay alive, well, the lifeblood of the people was sucked dry by heavy, heavy taxation. There was no middle class. There were the 1% to 2%, the ruling elites, just a few merchants, and the majority poor, living in grinding poverty. So the fantasy that the devil tempted Jesus with 
was finally regaining power. For centuries, the people of Israel had been talking about the vengeance of God finally being unleashed on these empires who had brutalized them. Like, they didn't have a kingdom anymore is how they felt. And so this is the temptation to finally change the game. Like, the kingdom of God has come near. Imagine everything set right. Imagine the capital of the world no longer being Rome but Jerusalem. And imagine every Jewish family with plenty of land and plenty of food and plenty of money and every Jewish child with a full belly, not afraid of being hauled away into slavery. Imagine Caesar paying taxes to Jerusalem. On the face of it, this temptation looked so good. It looked like everything that Jesus wanted. The kingdom of God has come near. But underneath it, it was about something else. It wasn't only about who was in power. It was the way that that power was acquired. It was how the power was wielded. For more than 500 years, there had been only one path to power. And that path was violence and bloodshed and brute force. And this is how the devil, Jesus called him the prince of this world. This is how he ruled the world with power. So whether Romans held the power or Jewish zealots held the power, because both of them had held the power in the past 500 years, they all used the same means, the same method to hold power. They were governing the world with brute force and with bloodshed. And so for 500 years, the people of Israel had been subject to a whole lot of brutality because they couldn't muster the violent force needed to regain power in the land they called home. So the question underneath this temptation for Jesus was, all right, Jesus, if you are the Messiah, what kind of Messiah are you going to be? And what kind of kingdom are you declaring? Are you going to endorse the same kind of power that every ruler for centuries has used to govern the world? What Jesus was rejecting in this mountain temptation was not simply worshiping Satan. He was rejecting a certain kind of power. Jesus was living in a world that had been ruled with a diabolic kind of power for centuries, ruling with injustice and oppression and exploitation and domination and brute force and crushing others. And now Jesus was being offered that kind of power. I will give you the authority, Satan says. You know, there's an interesting phenomenon that happens when people gain power. It has a way of changing them. It turns out the phrase, drunk with power, isn't just a phrase. In fact, there's research that shows that gaining power actually affects us, affects people similarly to alcohol, in that it lowers their inhibitions. Social psychologist Deborah Grunfeld says disinhibition is the very root of power. Power is experienced as an adrenaline rush. 
it can actually change the serotonin levels in your body. When people gain power, they tend to stop caring what other people think. They become worse at reading other people's reactions. They're more likely to go after their own appetites. They're more likely to hold stereotypes. They're more likely to take higher risks. Basically, they stop trying to control themselves. There are two researchers, Ward and Keltner, and they did the, the following experiment. So they put people into groups of three, three people, and they had them collaborate on a policy paper about a controversial social issue. And they randomly put one person in the group in a position of power. They said, your job is to grade the other two people in the group on their contribution, and the grade you give them is going to affect whether or not these people receive a cash bonus at the end of the study. So they had some power. So after the group had been working for about half an hour, the researchers would bring in a plate with five cookies. And the obvious question is, well, who's going to eat the extra cookies? So guess what the researchers found? The powerful person was much more likely to eat the second cookie. They were much more likely to eat with their mouth open and to scatter crumbs on the table. You may say, that's a silly study, but Stanford professor of organizational behavior, Robert Sutton, says, this silly study scares me because it shows how having just a slight power edge causes regular people to grab the cookies for themselves and act like rude pigs. Just think about the effects in thousands of interactions every year. Power breeds nastiness. Another study, the Stanford Prison Experiment. So researcher and psychologist Philip Zimbardo has written a chilling book about this called The Lucifer Effect. So Zimbardo, he put out an advertisement for participants in a psychological study of prison life, and people responded, and Zimbardo made half of the participants prison guards and half of them prisoners. The guards were told not to physically abuse the prisoners. So the prisoners were arrested by actual police at their homes because they were trying to simulate, uh, make it as real as possible. They were taken to the police station. They were strip searched. They were issued uniforms with numbers and from that point on, their names weren't used, only their number was used. They were blindfolded. They were driven to the prison. The prison facility included, it had cells. It had a solitary confinement cell that was like a, a closet, barely large enough for a person. And the guards operated in shifts. The study was supposed to last for 24 days, but within six days, it had devolved to a point where the researchers said, we can't continue. This is unethical to continue. By day two, the prisoners had united and revolted. They were tearing the numbers off their uniforms and refusing to comply with orders. And the prison guards 
responded viciously and abusively. They began disrupting the prisoners' sleep at night, blasting whistles in their face. They stripped the prisoners naked. They took away their beds. They frequently forced them to do push-ups with a foot on their back often. They forced solitary confinement. They forced prisoners to do vaguely erotic acts with one another. Their treatment of the prisoners became very cruel and dehumanizing. And the prisoners began having mental breakdowns, uncontrollable anxiety and rage. One of them developed a psychosomatic rash. By day six, things had gone so far that Philip Zimbardo realized uh, we got to pull the plug on this study. It had become unethical to continue. So Philip Zimbardo was later reflecting on the people who he had chosen to take place in the trial. Were they just bad apples? Is that why they did what they did? None of them knew one another before the experiment. Also, every single one of the participants had been given a diagnostic interview and a personality test in order to screen out anyone who might not be mentally stable or had a history of crime or aggression. Every single participant had said that they would rather be a prisoner than a guard. He didn't have anyone in the study who said, I want to be a guard and who might want to be aggressive. Zimbardo had chosen only the most mature, peaceful, stable, pro-social candidates to participate. And yet, in less than a week, they had stooped to become cruel and dehumanizing. So Zimbardo reflected on how often society runs with this notion that the bad apples infect the whole barrel. And he wondered, well, wait a minute, is it the, how often is it the other way around that the bad barrel infects the apples? And he saw the bad barrel as the power dynamics of the situation that he had set up with his experiment. Zimbardo's study, The Lucifer Effect, has something important to say about power, the authority, the power that Satan is trying to offer to Jesus in this story. It has something to, important to say about how power dynamics can tempt us to do things that we might think we would never do. It's been said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. From the mountaintop, Jesus wasn't simply rejecting an invitation to idolatry or to worship Satan. Jesus was rejecting a certain kind of power. A kind of power that might cause him to do things that he wouldn't otherwise do. At every turn, Jesus taught his disciples to reject power over others. And instead, he taught them power under others. Power over others is coercive power. It's lording it over others. It's forcing people. It's pushing people into our ideas of goodness, 
scaring and threatening people into that goodness, legislating people into goodness, punishing people into goodness. It's enforcing it all with control from on high. Power under others is serving people into goodness, loving neighbors into goodness, loving enemies into goodness. It's reconciling people. It's self-emptying. It's washing feet. The goal of those who exert power over others and the goal of those who exert power under others may actually be very similar or possibly the same. They may sometimes have the exact same fantasy, and yet one method of attaining the goal is the way of the devil, and the other is the way of Jesus. Jesus' disciples, they wanted to bring the kingdom of God by torching their enemies with fire from heaven. They wanted to jockey for positions of honor, argue about who's the greatest, They wanted power over others. That was the only power that worked in their mind. That's what they had seen work for most of their life. And over and over, Jesus taught his disciples to exercise power under others. He says, Jesus called them over and said, You know that those who rule the Gentiles show off their authority over them, and their high-ranking officials order them around. But that's not the way it will be with you. Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be your slave. Just as the human one, the Son of Man, didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. He says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Jesus says, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, to grasp. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. It's really hard to embrace power under others. Because at first, it just seems like being weak. The New Testament writers, however, they must have finally gotten what Jesus was teaching about power under others. Because over and over, we find the New Testament writers embracing weakness and service to others. They operate not out of their strength, their pedigree, their background, their skills, their training, their power. They operate out of their dependency, out of their infirmities, their smallness, being unschooled, their humility. To Jesus, grasping for power in the kingdom of God is like trying to 
fit a round peg into a square hole. So Jesus says to Satan on the mountain of temptation, he says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, he sees this worship not simply in terms of like, while well, songs you sing in a worship service or something, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. This is your spiritual act of worship. It's, I'm not going to go along with the same authority and power game that you're trying to sell me, Satan. So for the first 300 years after Jesus, Christians resisted embracing power over others. But then with Constantine, the Roman Emperor Constantine, they gained power. And they gained the Roman Empire. Christianity became the state religion. Christianity was mandated from on high. And the ugly underbelly of the devil's temptation became clear. Richard Beck sums up the temptation on the mountain this way. He says the price for political power is spiritual allegiance. Church history shows that every time the church aligns itself with power over others, the church somehow ends up not living out God's love. They don't live out God's heart for the poor and the outcast, God's justice, God's heart for reconciliation, God's heart for all humanity. Every time that the church grasps for power over others, they end up ruining their witness somehow. The world looks at what the church is doing and somehow it looks ugly to them. It looks like an abuse of power. Somehow in the midst of justice issues, the world looks at the church and they see people hurting in the wake of the church wielding power over others. Now the irony there is that so often the church's heart has been well-intentioned. The church has a fantasy, a vision of what the world would be like if everything went the way that they think it should go, and they just want a little more control. And the thinking goes like, look, we're the good guys here. We're taking the power away from the bad guys so that we can lord it over the bad guys and rule the world and make the world the way it's supposed to be. And it all sounds so good. And this is Christian nationalism. This is Christian partisan politics. As Alan Bevere says, partisan politics for Christians is a fistfight on the Titanic. The goal, the fantasy may be oh so good, but every time the church grabs for power to accomplish that good goal, they fail to see that they're grasping for the same thing that the devil offered Jesus on the mountain. So let's end where we began with that magic button. Underneath so many experiences of feeling out of control, there's this desire. I wish I just had a little more control, just a little more control, because there are people you would like to change. Think about it. Who is it that you wish you could change? Bend their will a little bit. Have a little more control. And it's oh so easy. It sounds oh so enticing to bow to Satan's way of ruling this world by wielding a little bit of power 
over others in the way that you can. Jesus' life was centered in many ways on change. Jesus was changing people and changing things. Jesus was up to his neck in people's lives and the social problems of his day. And Jesus was not interested in wielding power over others. Jesus worked for that change by exercising power under others. So how do you do that? How do you embrace that? Say, I'm not just putting my head in the sand. I'm not just acting like everything is okay. There are social problems and real life problems and situations where I do want to affect some change and I'm not going to exercise power over others. So I want to offer the beginning of a conversation. Maybe a few practical suggestions, a few actions you might take as a way of not conforming to the pattern of this world, a way of resisting this temptation towards power over others, a way of walking in the path of self-emptying, service, love for enemies, foot washing. So I have a few ideas, but I also, on Sunday, I opened up the conversation because I, I think that we inspire one another when we have this conversation. So I hope that you can find some people to have this conversation with and keep it going. So here's an idea. Go Christmas shopping this week for an enemy. Someone who is mad at you, upset with you, someone who has hurt you deeply, and buy them something really nice. Like, really nice. Or even better, don't buy them something. Make them something. And then mail it to them anonymously. This is not a passive-aggressive, because that's still power over. This is a power under. It's, I am sending you something, and there's no strings attached. You don't even know that it's me. I just am blessing you. Another idea. Review the organizations that you're partnered with and sending money to. And I'm not telling you what to do here. I'm just introducing a question. Look at these organizations and ask the question, are they exercising power over? Are they trying to fix everything they want to change by enforcing goodness and lording it over others? Like the Jesus says, this is how the Gentile, Gentiles do it, but not so with you. Oh, or are they exercising power under? Like, are there organizations that, and maybe you say, boy, I need to find them, and they are boots on the ground, and they are serving humans in local conditions, no matter what the situation, meeting people where they are, washing feet, reconciling, serving, loving. Have that conversation with the Spirit. See where the Spirit takes you. Another idea there's probably a job at your place of work or at your home that no one wants to do. It might be cleaning the microwave in the staff room. It might be scooping the dog poop. 
Go do that job before anyone asks. Don't look for any recognition. Try to do it when people aren't looking. Simply take up the towel like Jesus. Jesus takes up the towel and washes his disciples' feet. And I don't begin to think this is these three ideas I just gave you are the end of it. They're the beginning. So rather than stopping the conversation there, I want to keep it going by asking this question. Have you ever witnessed Jesus' power under others accomplishing what power over others was unable to accomplish? Tell the story. And if you could be having this conversation with others, my hope would be that you begin to develop an imagination for what is possible when you exercise power under others. Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.